Hey strangers, before I get into today's episode, I just want to let you know that this is a warning. The following episode is going to be pretty intense. You're going to be hearing audio clips from an actual suicide that was broadcasted on both stories. So it can be a little intense, so this is a warning to you listening to this. If you're uncomfortable with the sound of death, then this episode is not for you. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Strange Talk. Christine Chebik was an American television news reporter who worked for WTOG and WXLT-TV in Florida. She is known for being the first person to die by suicide on a live television broadcast. Chebik was born in Hudson, Ohio on August 24, 1944. She is the daughter of Margarissa D. Pegg and George Fairbanks Chubbuck. She has two brothers, Greg and Tim. Chubbuck attended the Laurel School for Girls in Shaker Heights, a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. During her years at Laurel, she started a small tongue-in-cheek group called the Dateless Wonders Knitting Club. Chubbuck always struggled with her appearance. She felt she could never have a romantic relationship. She struggled very much so with her appearance, thinking that she could never live up to being the beautiful models that she would see on television and in magazines. She attended Miami University in Oxford, Ohio for one year, majoring in theater arts, then attended Edcott College in Beverly, Massachusetts, before earning a degree in broadcasting at Boston University in 1965. In her early career, she worked for WVIZ in Cleveland for a year in 1966 to 1967 and attended a summer workshop in radio and television at New York University in 1967. Also in 1967, Chubbuck worked in Canton, Ohio and for three months at WKED-TV in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania as an assistant producer for two local shows. The name of the shows were called Woman's World and Keys to the City before leaving in 1968 to spend four years as a hospital computer operator and two years with the cable television firm in Sarasota, Florida. Immediately before joining ABC affiliate WXLT-TV, she worked in the traffic department of WTOG in St. Petersburg's Florida. Chubbuck had moved into her family's summer cottage on Siesta Key, Florida. After the divorce of her parents, her mother Peg and younger brother Greg came to live in Florida home. When Greg left, her elder brother Timothy moved in. She had a close relationship with her family, describing her mother and Greg as her closest friends. Chubbuck often volunteered at Sarasota Memorial Hospital, giving puppet shows to children with intellectual disabilities. She occasionally incorporated the homemade puppets into her WXLT TV talk show known as the Suncoast Digest. WXLT-TV's owner, Bob Nelson, had initially hired Chubbuck as a reporter but later gave her a community affairs talk show called the Suncoast Digest, which ran at 9 a.m. Production manager Gordon J. Acker described Chubbuck's new show to a local paper. He said, it will feature local people and local activities. It will give attention, for instance, to the storefront organizations that are concerned with alcoholics, drug users, and other lost segments of the community. Page 5 of the article showed a smiling Chubbuck posed with an ABC camera. Chubbuck took her position very seriously, inviting local Sarasota Barton officials to discuss matters of interest to the growing beach community. Chubbuck spoke to her family often at length about her struggles with depression and suicidal tendencies, though she did not inform them of her specific intent beforehand. She had attempted to overdose on drugs in 1970 and frequently made reference to that event. She had also been seeing a psychiatrist up until several weeks before her death. Chubbuck's mother chose not to tell the station management of her daughter's suicidal tendencies because she feared Chubbuck would be fired as a result of it. Her focus on her lack of intimate relationships is generally considered to be the driving force for her depression. Her mother later summarized, her suicide was simply because her personal life was not enough. 
she lamented to co-workers that her 30th birthday was approaching and she was still a virgin who had never been on more than two dates with the man. Her brother Greg later recalled several times she had gone out with the man before moving to Sarasota, but agreed she had trouble connecting socially in the beach resort town. He believed her constant self-deprecation for being dateless contributed to her ongoing depression. In a later interview, Greg stated that Christine had been in two serious relationships. The first had been when she was a teenager and was with a man in his 20s who had subsequently died in a car accident, and the second had been as an adult, but she had broken it off under pressure from her father because the boyfriend was Jewish. Christina had her right ovary removed in an operation the year before and had been told that if she did not become pregnant within two to three years, it was unlikely she would ever be able to conceive a child. According to a 1974 Sally Quinn article in the Washington Post, Chubbuck had an unrequited crush on a co-worker named George Peter Ryan. She baked him a cake for his birthday and sought his romantic attention, only to find out he was already involved with sports reporter Andrea Kirby. Kirby had been the co-worker closest to Chubbuck, but she was offered a new job in Baltimore, which had further depressed Chubbuck. Chubbuck's lack of a romantic partner considered a tangent of her desperate need to have close friends. Though co-workers said she tended to be brusque and often defensive whenever they made friendly gestures towards her. She was self-deprecating, criticizing herself constantly and rejecting any compliments others paid her. Years later, her brother Greg recalled that she displayed many symptoms of bipolar disorder, which was not generally recognized in the psychiatric community at the time of her death. A week before her suicide, she told Rob Smith, the night news editor, that she had bought a gun and joked about killing herself on air. Smith later stated that he did not respond to what he thought was Chubbuck's sick attempt at humor and changed the subject. On the morning of July 15, 1974, Chubbuck confused co-workers by claiming she had to read a newscast to open Suncoast Digest, something she had never really done before. That morning's talk show guests waited across the studio while Chubbuck sat at the news anchor's desk during the first eight minutes of her program, Chubbuck covered three national news stories and then a shooting from the previous day at a local restaurant called Beef and Bottle at the source Sarasota Brandon Airport. The film reel of the restaurant shooting had jammed and would not run, so Chubbuck shrugged it off and said on camera, To exclusive footage of the crime scene just moments sure. after... What do I do? Uh, uh, tell George. God damn it. It's jammed. It isn't going to roll. Here we go. Well, come on, Kenny. Uh, it appears that we're having some uh, technical difficulty. We had wanted to show you some film from the scene, but I'm sure that if you uh, Kenny, where are tomorrow, you? Tomorrow, no, you can catch it. Keep swimming. So now. In keeping with the WZRB policy, don't give up on it. Presenting the most immediate and complete reports of local blood and guts, TV30 presents what is believed to be a television first. In living color, an exclusive coverage of an attempted suicide. audio you heard wasn't actually the audio from the live television broadcast when Christina Chubbick decided to end her life live on television. That audio was actually taken from the 2016 film Christine. Rebecca Hall was the actress who portrayed Christine and the reason I chose to use it was because I thought it would paint a pretty good picture of what actually went on and how it happened that day Christina Chubbuck decided to take her life in front of so many people. What really did happen was Chubbuck fell forward violently 
and the technical director faded the broadcast rapidly to black. The station quickly ran a standard public service announcement and then a movie. Some television viewers called the police, while others called the station to inquire if the shooting was staged. After the shooting, news director Mike Simmons found the papers from which Chubbuck had been reading her newscasts and contained a complete script of her program, including not only the shooting, but also a third-person account to be read by whichever staff member took over the broadcast after the incident. He said her script called for her condition to be listed as critical, and this is what she had written, and it was something like this. TV40 News personality Christine Chubbuck shot herself in a live broadcast this morning on a Channel 40 talk program. She was rushed to Sarasota Memorial Hospital, where she remains in critical condition. Chubbuck was taken to Sarasota Memorial Hospital, where she was pronounced dead 14 hours later. Upon receiving the news, a WXLT staffer released the information to other stations using Chubbuck's script. For a time, WXLT aired reruns of the TV series Gentle Ben in place of Christine's Suncoast Digest. Chubbuck's body was cremated. The funeral ceremony was held on the beach where her ashes were scattered into the Gulf of Mexico. Approximately 120 people attended, including local officials who had appeared on her show. Three songs by Christina Chubbuck's favorite singer, Roberta Flack, were played during the ceremony, and a Presbyterian minister named Thomas Benson delivered the eulogy, and he said, We suffer at our sense of loss. We are frightened by her rage. We are guilty in the face of her rejection. We are hurt by her choice of isolation, and we are confused by her message. Chubbuck's show, The Suncoast Digest, stayed on the air for several years with new hosts. Simmons, the station director, said Chubbuck's suicide was unrelated to the station. He went on to say the crux of the situation was that she was a 29-year-old girl who wanted to be married and who wasn't. He said this in 1977. The footage of Chubbuck's death has not been seen since its initial airing, and numerous theories on what happened to the footage have been advanced. One was that the station owner Robert Nelson kept it, and it was in the possession of his widow, Molly. It was confirmed in June of 2016 that the footage of Christina Chubbuck's death exists and had indeed been in Robert Nelson's possession, but was handed over to a very large law firm for safekeeping by Molly Nelson. She has no plans on making it publicly available. Back in 2007, Greg Chubbuck spoke publicly about his sister for the first time since 1974 in an E! Entertainment television special. And in 2016, Greg gave an interview to the Sun newspaper, stating that the tape had been locked away and that he had obtained an injunction to ensure that it would never be released. Many people believe that it was just mental illness that drove Christina Chubbuck to take her life that day. But some also believe that it was due to the news channel station wanting to just produce sensationalism and focus on violence in the world. Could it be that violence drove Christina to take her own life in an attempt to garner more ratings? Unfortunately, we'll never really truly know the answer to that, because only Christina Chubbuck knows why she chose to take her life that day. R. Bud Dwyer was the 30th state treasurer of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He served from 1971 to 1981 
as a Republican member of the Pennsylvania State Senate, representing the state's 50th district. He then served as a 30th treasurer of Pennsylvania from January 20th to 1981 up until his death. Arbaudoir was born on November 21st, 1939 in St. Charles, Missouri. Dwyer graduated from Algany College in Meadville, Pennsylvania, where he was a member of the Beta Chi chapter of the Theta Chi fraternity, after earning a master's degree in education. He taught social studies and coached football at Cambridge Springs High School. In his early career as a Republican, Dwyer became active in politics, and he was elected to the Pennsylvania House of Representatives from the 6th District, although seats were appointed by county prior to 1969 in 1964 and was re-elected in 1966 and 1968. In 1970, while still sitting state representative, Dwyer ran for a seat in the Pennsylvania State Senate from its 50th district and won. Shortly after his victory, he resigned his seat in the State House and was sworn in as a senator in January of 1974. After being elected to additional terms in 1974 and 1978, Dwyer decided to try for a state office and in 1980 ran for and won the office of Pennsylvania Treasurer that had been held by Robert E. Casey since 1967. Repeat after me. I, Arba Dwyer. I, Arba Dwyer. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That I will support, obey, and defend. That I will support, obey, and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of this Commonwealth. And the Constitution of this Commonwealth. And that I will discharge the duties of my office with fidelity. And that I will discharge the duties of my office with fidelity. I've said many, many times since November 4th, only in America, in response to congratulations I've received from people. I mean by that that only in America could a kid from Booming Valley, and that was the nearest town to which I lived, without affluence, without a political base, without a political legacy, be elected to a statewide office in the fourth largest state in this great nation of ours, a state of almost 12 million people. And I think all of us can be just so grateful because if it can happen to me, it can happen to many more like me and like you. And I think we should all be grateful that it's only in America. Just for a few formal remarks, I would hope that my term of office as state treasurer could be marked by openness, by hard work, and hopefully that combination will lead to success. The openness to be very proud of our accomplishments, the openness also to admit our mistakes and hope that there are not very many. Hard work, of course, which it takes to get any job done, and that's what I'll be doing and we'll be expecting my Treasury Department employees to do. And I said, and hopefully success then for you, the people of Pennsylvania and the people, even the coming future generations in Pennsylvania. The Office of State Treasurer is a unique office. It's the oldest executive office in state government, having been created by our forefathers when the colony of Pennsylvania became the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, even before the Office of Governor was created. It's also the smallest independent agency in state government, having some only 380 employees. It's unique in another way also because it can be extremely meaningful where many other departments or most of the other agencies of state government spend revenues in order to function, in order to provide services. The Office of State Treasurer, the Department of the State Treasury, has the opportunity to save money through the pre-audit function by making sure that money is properly spent and to earn money through the prudent investment of the taxpayer's dollars between the time the state receives those taxpayer dollars and the time the dollars are, are, need to be spent to fund programs. So it is a, a unique office, and I hope to be able to implement both of those programs to further save and to further earn. 
so that there are monies available to fund the state's programs. In closing, I would like to read A Prayer for Guidance in Office by Herman S. Garst. Dear Lord, the people have elected me to speak for them in things of state. To thee I come for help. I shall be tempted by those persons whose God is gain. May I be true to commonwealth, self, and thee. Stand with me, Lord, each time I speak, when godless men would make a mockery of righteousness. At voting time, touch thou my lips, for I would not bring shame or fear to fellow men, nor cast dishonor on thy name. Amen. During the early 1980s, public employees of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania overpaid millions of dollars in Federal Insurance Contributions Act, or the FICA, taxes. As a result, the state solicited bids from accounting firms to determine refunds for its employees. The contract was eventually awarded to Computer Technology Associates, or the CTA, a California-based firm owned by John Torquato, Jr., a native of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Later, Pennsylvania Governor Dick Thornburg received an anonymous memo detailing allegations of bribery that took place during the bidding process for the $4.6 million contract. An investigation was undertaken by federal prosecutors. Dwyer was charged with agreeing to receiving kickbacks worth $300,000 in return for using his office to steer the contract toward the CTA. The U.S. attorney also indicted Torquato and Torquato's attorney, William T. Smith, Smith's wife, and Bob Asher, the former Republican Party chairman for the state of Pennsylvania, in return for lighter sentences. Torquato and the Smiths pleaded guilty and testified on behalf of the federal government against Dwyer and Asher. It was revealed at Dwyer's trial that Dwyer sought in one approval for special legislation that authorized him to recover the FICA overpayments and that coded computer tape seized from CTA's offices in July of 1984 showed that Dwyer was to receive a $300,000 payoff for awarding CTA the contract. Moreover, Smith and Torquato's claim about Dwyer being bribed were corroborated by four independent and impartial witnesses, and Smith's testimony against Dwyer was virtually identical to written statements Smith made long before entering into a plea agreement. Dwyer, however, maintained that he awarded CTA the contract on the basis of his task force recommendation, yet this conflicted with the fact that Dwyer himself personally handled all matters relating to the contract six days prior to awarding it to the CTA. Moreover, Dwyer awarded the contract to CTA, an obscure California firm with few employees and little equipment. Despite being informed by the major Pennsylvania-based accounting firm, Arthur Young and Associates, that they could perform the FICA recovery as fast as CTA for half the cost. Nevertheless, Dwyer denied any wrongdoing. Dwyer's lawyer spoke to the prosecutor, acting U.S. Attorney West, asking him if he would drop all charges against Dwyer if Dwyer resigned as state treasurer. West declined the offer. He instead offered to let Dwyer plead guilty to a single charge of bribe receiving, which would have meant up to a maximum of five years imprisonment. As long as he resigned from his office as a treasurer of Pennsylvania and fully cooperated with the government's investigation. But Dwyer refused. Instead, Dwyer went to trial. At his trial, Dwyer did not take the stand and his lawyer presented no defense witnesses. However, his defense was curtailed by the prosecution because the case was limited to only those who had been charged. The names of the indicted co-conspirators were linked in the bribery scandal but were not on trial were withheld. Those unnamed individuals were believed to have been staff members of the Dupin County Republican Party. On December 18, 1986, Dwyer was found guilty on 11 counts of conspiracy, mail fraud, perjury, and interstate transportation in aid of racketeering, and consequently faced a sentence of up to 55 years imprisonment and a $300,000 fine. 
His sentencing was scheduled for January 23, 1987, to be performed by the U.S. District Court Judge Malcolm Murr. One male fraud charge against Dwyer was dismissed by Judge Muir. One juror, Carolyn Edwards of Williamsport, found it emotionally difficult to convict Dwyer and Asher since they were men of very high integrity, and they just made a mistake. Bob Asher, Dwyer's co-defendant, was sentenced to one year in jail. He later returned to politics and served as a Republican National Committeeman for Pennsylvania. Many people believed that Dwyer was innocent especially in the documentary, The Life of Bud Dwyer, An Honest Man. To this day, people still do not believe that Bud Dwyer was guilty of any wrongdoing or receiving any bribes. Pennsylvania law stated that Dwyer could not officially be removed from office until his sentencing in January. Given this, Dwyer stated that until his legal appeal was resolved, he would stay on as treasurer under leave of absence without pay. In the interment, the Treasury Department would be run by Deputy Treasurer Donald L. Johnson. Dwyer continued to profess his innocence after being convicted, as did others close to him. On December 23rd, he wrote a letter to President Ronald Reagan seeking a presidential pardon, and to Senator Arlene Specter seeking support in this effort. The week of Dwyer's sentencing, Pennsylvania State Attorney General Leroy Zimmerman and state prosecutors were investigating a provision of the Pennsylvania State Constitution where removal of a civil worker from office who has been convicted of a crime is self-executing, thus automatic upon that person's sentencing. A decision confirming this constitutional point was expected on January 22nd, the day before Dwyer's sentencing hearing. In a meeting in his home, Dwyer discussed the idea of a press conference with his press secretary, James Duke Horshock, and Deputy Treasurer Don Johnson. And on January 15, 1987, at the time, Johnson cautioned Dwyer not to use such a forum to attack the governor or individuals involved with his criminal conviction. And Dwyer assured him that he would not do so. Both men left, assuming Dwyer would ultimately resign if the press conference were held. Dwyer finally reached Senator Specter by telephone on January 21st, two days before his sentencing. A Specter aide stated that the two of them talked for up to eight to ten minutes. Following up on his letter to the senator asking for help, he personally asked for the presidential pardon at that time. The senator's response was that this request was not realistic because the judicial process, including appeals, had not yet run its course. On the same day, Dwyer asked his press secretary, Horshock, and deputy press secretary, Gregory Penny, to set up a news conference for the next day without telling them what he was to discuss. Horshock arranged the press conference for 10.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time the next day, January 22nd. The press secretary called dozens of reporters asking them to attend and told them he did not know its subject. Initially, Dwyer wanted to ban from the press conference certain reporters who he believed wrote biased accounts about him, and even suggested that a guard should be in attendance to prevent entry to those who were not on his authorized list. Horshock was unconvinced about Dwyer's claims that he was being conspired against, objected, stating to Dwyer that he could not use state government facilities to manipulate the free flow of information. Leading up to the press conference, acting U.S. Attorney West, who had secured the conviction against Dwyer, remarked that the treasurer's resignation sounds like the appropriate thing to do under the circumstances. It seems like it would save everybody a lot of time and aggravation, he said. Similarly, Harrisburg Patriot News reporter Ken Marshall described the consensus among reporters. He said they would be attending to see Dwyer announce his resignation from office. My mission was to stay there until he said those words, then call in a new top for our story. What nobody knew at the time was that Dwyer was considering a more drastic action. The night before his press conference, Dwyer wrote the following note. I enjoy being with you, Joe, so much. The next 20 years or so would have been wonderful. Tomorrow is going to be so difficult 
and I hope I cannot go through with it. is ripe for their immediate attention. It is not as sexy or as exciting as the Iranian arms deal, but it is in the long term and more important to the American people and the survival of our former government. I would also urge you and your media employers to work for the repeal of the death penalty, unless the test would be absolutely no doubt. I regret that on several occasions when I was a member of the legislature that I voted for the death penalty. As a result of what has happened to me, in this case, I am convinced that innocent people have been found guilty and have been executed. And two weeks ago, if you saw 60 Minutes, they discussed the Neil Ferber case in Philadelphia, uh, which, where a person was convicted of murder and was on death row, and then was finally discovered he did not commit the, that murder. Around the turn of the century, the muckraking journalist Lincoln Steffens authored the book, The Shame of the Cities. His book was largely responsible for much needed improvement in the living conditions and working conditions of the slum dwellers in America's cities. Lincoln Steffens' journalistic goal was, quote, to see if the shameful facts spread out on all their shame would not burn through our civic shamelessness and set fire to American pride, close quote. Perhaps what America needs most now is another Lincoln Steffens, an author who will write a best-selling book entitled The Shame of Our Law. As my political career draws to a close, I want to thank the people who made it possible, beginning with the good people of Crawford County, who in 1964 had the faith to elect a 24-year-old as the youngest member of the General Assembly, and then the people of Crawford, Mercer, and Eastern Erie Counties, who in 1970 elected me to the State Senate, thanks to the voters of Pennsylvania who elected me treasurer in 1980 and in 1984 saw through the sham of the CT allegations and re-elected me by a margin of 310,000 votes. And all I participated successfully in eight primary elections, eight general elections, and one election for delegate to the Republican National Convention, which was my personal bicentennial project. And I'm on the last page now, and I don't have enough to pass out, but Duke, I'll leave this here and you can make copies uh, for the people, there's, there's a few extra copies here right now. I thank the good Lord for giving me 47 years of exciting challenges, stimulating experiences, many happy occasions, and most of all, the finest wife and children any man could ever desire. Now my life has changed for no apparent reason. People who call and write are exasperated and feel helpless. They know I'm innocent and want to help, but in this nation, the world's greatest democracy, there's nothing they can do to prevent me from being punished for a crime they know I did not commit. Some who have called have said I am a modern day Job. Judge Muir is also noted for his medieval sentences. I face a maximum sentence of 55 years in prison and a $300,000 fine for being innocent. Judge Muir has already told the press that he, quote, felt invigorated when we were found guilty, and he plans to imprison me as a deterrent to other public officials. But it wouldn't be a deterrent because every public official who knows me knows that I am innocent. It wouldn't be a legitimate punishment because I've done nothing wrong. Since I'm a victim of political persecution, my prison would simply be an American gulag. I ask those that believe in me to continue to extend friendship and prayer to my family, to work untiringly for the creation of a true justice system here in the United States, and to press on with the efforts to vindicate me so that my family and their future families are not tainted by this injustice that has been perpetrated on me. We were confident that right and truth would prevail, and I would be acquitted, and we would devote the rest of our lives working to create a justice system here in the United States. The guilty verdict has strengthened that resolve. But as we've discussed our plans to expose the warts of our legal system, people have said, why bother? No one cares. You'll look foolish. 60 Minutes, 2020, the American Civil Liberties Union, Jack Anderson, and others have been publicizing cases like yours for years, and it doesn't bother anyone. At this point in time, Bob Holsey here. Bob. Where's Greg? Can you come up here? Where's Don Johnson? Can you come up, Don? Greg, where are you? I'm right here. Okay. Just hang on to that right for the moment. Don, there's some things for you to do and so note in here for Joanne. Okay.
Now, and there's some things for you to do. And it's a note in here for Joanne. Okay. When I... And I... No, no, no. Please, please leave the room at this wall. At this point, Dwyer stopped reading from his prepared remarks, with the gathered press still waiting on his expected resignation. There was still a significant portion remaining which detailed what he was actually planning to do, and it reads as follows. I've repeatedly said that I'm not going to resign as state treasurer. After many hours of thought and mediation, I've made a decision that should not be an example to anyone because it is unique to my situation. Last May, I told you that after the trial, I would give you the story of the decade. To those of you who are shallow, the events of this morning will be that story. But to those of you with depth and concerned, the real story will be what I hope and pray results from this morning. In the coming months and years, the development of a true justice system here in the United States, I am going to die in office in an effort to see if the shameful acts spread out in all their shame, will not burn through our civic shamelessness and set fire to American pride. Please tell my story on every radio and television station and in every newspaper and magazine in the United States. Please leave immediately if you have a weak stomach or mine since I don't want to cause physical or mental distress. Joanne, Rob, Didi, I love you. Thank you for making my life so happy. Goodbye to you all on the count of three. Please make sure that the sacrifice of my life is not in vain. But it did not go as that way, as you heard in the audio. After deciding to break from his speech, Dwyer called to three of his staffers, giving each a sealed envelope with the insignia of the Treasury Department. The first envelope, given to Bob Holst, contained a letter addressed to then-Pennsylvania Governor Bob Casey who had taken office just two days earlier. The second, given to Deputy Press Secretary Gregory Penny, contained an organ donor card and other related materials. The last, given to Deputy Treasurer Don Johnson, contained materials intended for Dwyer's family, including three letters, one for his wife Joanne, and one for each of his children, Rob and Dee Dee, and suggested funeral arrangements. A freelance photographer named Gary Miller one of the reporters in attendance describes the scene to this point. It was just kind of a long-winded, sad event. After he had finished speaking and handing out notes to his staffers, Dwyer then produced a manila envelope with a blue Smith & Wesson Model 27 357 Magnum revolver in it. When the crowd in the room saw what Dwyer had pulled out of the envelope, the mood changed immediately from one of waiting to see whether he would resign his office to one of panic, as nobody but Dwyer knew what he was planning to do with the gun. People gasped, and Dwyer backed up against the wall, pointing the weapon into the air. Dwyer calmly stated to the audience, Please, please leave the room if this will, if this will affect you. Some people in the room left to call for help. Among those who stayed, some pleaded with Dwyer to surrender the gun while others tried to approach him and seize the weapon. Dwyer warned against either action, exclaiming, don't, don't, this will hurt someone, as you heard in the audio. A moment later, Dwyer fired one shot into his mouth and collapsed to the floor, dead. Five news cameras recorded the events, 
one of the cameras remained focused on Dwyer and captured close-up footage of the aftermath of the shooting. As his body slumped to the floor, blood streamed from the exit wound in the back of his head as well from his nostrils and mouth. Horshock took the podium and asked the media to leave and for someone to call for medical assistance and the police. Dwyer died instantly from the gunshot shortly before 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, but was not pronounced dead until 11.31 a.m. An aide later stated that Dwyer's corneas were made available for transplant per his organ donation wishes, but that no other organs were usable by the time his body reached a hospital. A number of television stations throughout Pennsylvania broadcasted taped footage of Dwyer's suicide to a midday audience. Philadelphia station WPVI Channel 6 showed Dwyer pulling the trigger and falling backwards, but did not show the bullet path. Over the next several hours, news editors had decided how much of the graphic footage to air. With many stations, including WCAU and Pennsylvania's group W stations KYW and KDKA, froze the action just prior to the gunshot. However, the latter two allowed the audio of the shooting to continue under the frozen image. Group W's news cameraman William L. Bill Martin and reporter David Sullenberger had a camera set up at the conference. They chose to air the audio with the freeze frame of the gun in Dwyer's mouth. Only a handful aired the unedited press conference. WPVI in Philadelphia rebroadcasted the suicide footage in full on their 5 p.m. and 6 p.m. action news broadcast without a warning to viewers. The station's broadcast is a source for copies circulating on the internet today. WPXI in Pittsburgh is reported by the Associated Press to have broadcast the footage uncensored on an early newscast. In explaining the decision to air, WPXI operations manager by Williams said, It's an important event about an important man. Williams avoided airing the footage in the evening newscast, explaining, Everyone knows by then that he did it. There are children out of school. However, in central Pennsylvania, many children were home from school during the day of Dwyer's suicide due to a snowstorm. In Harris TV, Station WHTM-TV opted to broadcast uncut video of the suicide twice that day, defending the decision despite hundreds of viewers' complaints afterward due to the important nature of the story. Many older students reacted to the event by creating dark humor jokes similar to those that circulated after the Challenger disaster. A study of the incidents of the joke showed that they were told only in areas where stations showed uncensored footage of the press conference. At least one reporter present at Dwyer's suicide suffered from being a witness. Tony Romeo, a radio reporter, was standing a few feet from Dwyer after the suicide. Romeo developed depression and took a break from journalism. Dwyer's deep mistrust of outgoing Republican Governor Thornburg was spelled out in detail in his press conference statement. The timing of Dwyer's press conference and suicide meant that Thornburg was not empowered to appoint a treasurer to replace him, and instead this fell to Thornburg's successor, Democrat Bob Casey, who had taken office in January 20th of 1987. The letter Dwyer had sent to Casey stated, among other things, by the time you receive this letter, the Office of State Treasurer of Pennsylvania will be vacant. I stress to you that I did not resign, but was State Treasurer of Pennsylvania to the very end. It also stated that Casey will be the great governor that Pennsylvania needs at this time in our history. He suggested his wife, Joanne, as successor to Treasurer of Pennsylvania, describing her as very talented, personable, organized, and hardworking. Governor Casey did not take Dwyer's suggestion. Regardless of the events of January 22nd, the governor and legislator of Pennsylvania already expected Dwyer to either resign or be removed from office. And as such, a deal had already been brokered within the next treasurer, a Democrat, who would serve out Dwyer's term and step down at its end. This was G. Davis Green Jr., who was appointed as the 31st treasurer of Pennsylvania on January 23rd of 1987, 
the day after Dwyer's suicide. Following Dwyer's public suicide, the National Association of State Treasurers called for Dwyer's allegations, contained in his final press statement, to be reviewed by the United States Department of Justice. After a thorough investigation, the Justice Department's Office of Professional Responsibility cleared Attorney James West and everyone else involved in Dwyer's investigation and prosecution of any wrongdoing. The Federal Bureau of Investigation also investigated Dwyer's claims regarding improperty on behalf of FBI personnel. They ultimately found Dwyer's claims to be lacking in substance and specificity and warranting no further action. Since Dwyer died in office, his widow Joanne was able to collect full survivor benefits, totaling over $1.28 million, which at the time was the largest death benefit payment ever made by the state system. If Dwyer had been sentenced, state law would have prohibited the payment of his state-provided pension benefits. A spokesman for Dwyer suggested that he may have killed himself to preserve the pension benefits for his family, whose finances had been ruined by legal defense costs. Other statements made by friends and family also suggest that this was Dwyer's motivation from the start. So that was episode 25, the story and cases of Christine Chubbuck and R. Bud Dwyer. Um, it was, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was for you, but I have to admit it was kind of emotionally taxing knowing the fact that these people ended their lives in, in the way they did. Um, but I hope you guys uh, enjoyed today's episode. Um, it was very, very time consuming and very, a lot of heavy editing. So I hope you guys enjoyed what you heard, especially the music, which I want to thank all the artists who provided the music for this particular episode. I love the music and maybe it didn't, maybe it did. I don't know, but if it didn't fuck you, but <laughs> I felt like it was almost like you were listening to a documentary and I poured a lot of, um, creativity in this episode. So I hope you guys enjoy it and I hope it makes you guys want to come back and keep enjoying more episodes with me and i know i'm supposed to be a dark humor like comedy podcast but i felt given the circumstances well give them given the subject matter within this episode i felt it was good to kind of stay away from being dark because i know depression and mental illness is a very very hard thing to you know tackle but i felt i i gave both um christine chubbick and r bud dwyer um justice in their story and cases. Um, I wish there was more of Christine Chubbick. Um, so her story was first because it was actually a lot shorter because it was very hard trying to find anything. I tried to, I scoured the internet looking for anything I could find of uh, maybe interviews she did. But I, apparently after her death, um, most of the footage, not even of just her suicide, obviously her suicide is never going to be seen. I know there's a couple of videos out there that are supposedly her real death and it's like a black and white video but it's that's not real it's it's not a real it was just created as a student project i think or like a sick joke by some fucking loser who just decided to make a fake video because it, he it basically started circling the internet once because there was two films that came out about christine chubbick um they were both shown at the 2016 um sundance film festival i believe i know it was some type of film festival but uh, one was called Katie Plays Christine, which starred an actress by the name of Katie something. I'm terrible with names. But uh, she was, it was basically a documentary about her getting ready to portray the character, um, portray her character, Christine Chubbick. And then the other one was an actual biopic film centered around the incident of Christine Chubbick's suicide, who was portrayed by Rebecca Hall, which obviously that one's the better film to watch, but they each have their own unique take on it. And the other one is um, uh, Katie Plays Christine is more of like a documentary type style. Um, and it's actually pretty, it's, it's pretty decent watch. It actually shows, um, I believe his name is George Simmons, who was a colleague and coworker of, uh, Christine Chubbick. And he actually has footage of her that you can actually see. So you can see her speak, hear her speak. And you can also get kind of how Christina was almost spot on with the way she portrayed, um, Christine Chubbick. 
So I wish there was more footage of her, but I used what I could with that, and I chose to use the scene from the film because, like I said, it, it painted a pretty good picture of what actually went down that day Christine chose to take her life. As far as Arba Dwyer, there's um, a really good documentary that's actually available on YouTube that you can watch, and it's actually for free, so hurry up and go before it gets taken down. But it's called An Honest Man, The Life of Bud Dwyer and it's a really good documentary you can actually see all the footage from there you can see interviews of his colleagues and um, his co-workers and a lot of people still believe to this day that he was innocent despite what the FBI and all the investigation says because he was a very well beloved man <sighs> so hopefully you guys made it through the episode and you're listening to this right now so kudos to you give yourselves a round of applause for just going through an emotionally taxing episode that is strange talk podcast so feel free to follow me on instagram at strange talk podcast where you can keep up to date to what i'm going to be working on there's actually a special episode coming out next monday um and so be prepared for another this week in crime but monday's episode is going to be pretty good um i happy to announce it um i'm actually partnered up with kills and chills so i worked with they actually invited them to be on an episode for me and hopefully later in the future i will be doing an episode with them so be prepared for that fun if you're not following kills and chills go ahead and find them on instagram at kills and chills so i believe it's kill and then the letter n chills so go ahead and check them out if you want to find more interesting true crime topics also, feel free to send me things uh, like news articles or just talk to me however you want via email at strangetalkpodcast at outlook.com. And I'll feature your news articles if you send them there. You can also send them at, through Instagram, but I'll feature them in This Week in Crime. And the giveaway is still happening. I'm extending it to two more weeks. So at the beginning of March, I will announce a winner. So there's still time to go ahead and enter the contest. Just look for the post on my Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast to see how to enter the giveaway. <clears throat> also, if you want to support the show because you enjoy it so much, why not subscribe, tell your friends about it, and then visit patreon.com forward slash Strange Talk Podcast to become a tier member and support the show that you love so much and earn some sweet loot, you know, just for your trouble. So thank you for thank you again for joining today's episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And as always, stay fucking strange. <laughs>